Would you stand with me as we read? We'll be reading from the first two chapters of Nehemiah this morning. The words of Nehemiah, the son of Hakaliah. Now it happened in the month of Cheslev, in the twentieth year as I was in Susa, the citadel, that Hanani, one of my brothers, came with certain men from Judah. And I asked them concerning the Jews who escaped, who had survived the exile, and concerning Jerusalem. And they said to me, The remnant there in the province who have survived the exile is in great trouble and shame. The wall of Jerusalem is broken down, and its gates are destroyed by fire. As soon as I heard these words, I sat down and wept and mourned for days, and I continued fasting and praying before the God of heaven. And I said, O Lord God of heaven, the great and awesome God, who keeps covenant and steadfast love with those who love him and keep his commandments. Let your ear be attentive, and let your eyes open to hear the prayer of the servant that I now pray before you day and night for the people of Israel, your servants, confessing the sins of the people of Israel which have sinned against you. Even I and my father's house have sinned. We have acted very corruptly against you and have not kept the commandments, the statutes, and the rules that you commanded your servant Moses. Remember the word that you commanded your servant Moses, saying, If you are unfaithful, I will scatter you among the peoples. But if you return to me and keep my commandments and do them, though your outcasts are in the utmost parts of heaven, from there I will gather them and bring them to the place that I have chosen to make my name dwell there. They are your servants and your people, whom you have redeemed by your great power and by your strong hand. O Lord, let your ear be attentive to the prayer of your servant and to the prayer of your servants who delight to fear your name and give success to your servant today and grant him mercy in the sight of this man. Now I was the cupbearer to the king. In the month of Nisan, in the twentieth year of King Artaxerxes, when wine was before him, I took up the wine and I gave it to the king. Now I had not been sad in his presence, and the king said to me, Why is your face sad, seeing you're not sick? There is nothing but sadness of the heart. Then I was very much afraid. I said to the king, Let the king live forever. Why should not my face be sad? When the city, the place of my father's graves, lies in ruins, and its gates have been destroyed by fire. Then the king said to me, What are you requesting? So I prayed to the God of heaven, and I said to the king, If it pleases the king, and if your servant has found favor in your sight, that you send me to Judah, to the city of my father's graves, that I may rebuild it. And the king said to me, the queen sitting beside him, How long will you be gone, and when will you return? So it pleased the king to send me when I had given him a time. And I said to the king, If it pleases the king, let letters be given me to the governors of the province beyond the river, that they may let me pass through until I come to Judah. 
and a letter to Asaph, the, king, the keeper of the king's forest, that he may give me timber to make the beams for the gates of the fortress of the temple and for the wall of the city and for the house that I shall occupy. And the king granted me what I asked, for the good hand of my God was upon me. The word of the Lord. Good morning. It's good to be with you. My name is Zach. I'm one of the pastors here. If you're a guest with us, we're glad to have you. And we hope that you uh, feel welcome worshiping with our, our church family. This week we're jumping into uh, Nehemiah in the middle of our series uh, Ezra, uh, in the books of Ezra and Nehemiah. And Nehemiah is actually a continuation of the story in Ezra. The fact of uh, probably the reality of Ezra and Nehemiah is that they're actually one book. All of the volumes that we've dug up out of the ground, uh, the earliest manuscripts have them as one volume because they're both telling one story. They're telling the story of how Israel returns from exile out of Babylon to fulfill the prophecy of Jeremiah as God begins a new work in the world. But as we've learned uh, through Ezra, now as we'll continue to learn in Nehemiah, that the exiles return home um, wasn't easy, but they had a lot of work ahead of them. They had to rebuild the temple. They had to rebuild its foundations. And in Nehemiah, they'll have to rebuild the destroyed walls of Jerusalem and rebuild the city. And the one thing that we've said throughout this whole series is that there's this physical dimension that we see on the page, the things they're building and the foundations and the temple and the walls. We see Israel engaging in this work, but as they do, underneath the surface there's the spiritual dimension. That as they engage in the work, God is rebuilding his people. He's reteaching them what it means to be his people and teaching them the building blocks of worship. Now, as we uh, begin uh, Nehemiah, uh, the tension of the story was actually introduced to us back in Ezra 4. We didn't read that part during um, our sermon on Ezra 4, but it's uh, in verses uh, 6 through 23. It tells us that there's a problem. It sets up the problem for Nehemiah. It's a brief fast-forward that the tension of the, the issue doesn't get resolved until we get to Nehemiah. And the problem is, is that whenever the exiles returned, they tried to start to rebuild the city walls. But remember that the inhabitants of the land that did not want Israel to return sent a letter to Artaxerxes and they said, they're trying to rebuild the walls and remember that these people are stiff-necked and they're rebellious and as soon as they rebuild the walls, they're going to rebel and revolt against you. And so Artaxerxes decrees that the walls will not be rebuilt and that any reconstruction effort be stopped immediately until he says otherwise. And so the walls of Jerusalem continued to lie in ruins for 90 years, a century. So we come to Nehemiah in verse 1. He's in Susa, which is the winter palace of the Persian kings in southern Iraq. And Nehemiah tells us what he's doing there. He's the cupbearer of the king. If you're not familiar with the cupbearer, it's a quite interesting job. It's one that you try all the food before the king does. You try all the drink and the wine before the king does. Because this is ancient times, and assassinations attempt happened all the time. Just read the story of the Persian kings that many were killed and betrayed. And so the cupbearer was a defense against that. Cupbearer tried uh, all the greatest food and all the greatest wine, but they could die, putting their lives on the line each and every day. And their cupbearers would go even so far as to keep the king's cup in their sight at all times. 
It may sound like an odd job, but history has shown that it was actually no simple position in the king's court. It wasn't like they just kind of worked through cupbearers and there was a rotation. The cupbearer was a special job. And basically what Nehemiah is telling us in verse 11, when he says, I am the cupbearer to the king, he's probably telling us that he's the second most influential man in the Persian Empire, second to Artaxerxes himself. He's the second most influential man. He's carefully selected by the king, and the king trusts him alone above anyone else in the kingdom with his life every day. Nehemiah was powerful, wealthy. He was trustworthy, and he was a respected man. And I must say that he had to be spectacular. He had to be an incredible man if you think about the fact that within one generation you have an exile that rises, that is raised up to second in command in Persia. But that's an old story, right? It's the story of Joseph being exiled into slavery by his brothers and God orchestrating all these events to put all of his pieces in play and to bring him to a point where he has them right where he wants them. And Nehemiah, his story is the same, and his life is about to change. In the midst of all of his affluence, in the midst of all of his privilege and honor and influence and power, God is about to change his story. He's going to interrupt it, and he's going to repurpose Nehemiah's life in a very dramatic way. But the way he does it is by bringing Nehemiah bad news. He brings him bad news, and he devastates him. That certainly isn't encouraging. It might seem like it doesn't make sense, and we wouldn't want that to happen. Because usually when we feel devastated, that's when we begin to think that life is meaningless, and we begin to doubt our purposes, and we long for new purposes. But today, as scary as it is to think that we might have devastation brought upon us, the story of Nehemiah is a challenge to understand that it's in our devastation where we come to meet God. It's in our devastation that God gives us a new purpose. And in verses 2 and 3, Nehemiah's brother returns from Judah. And excitedly he comes to tell, or Nehemiah wants to hear good news from uh, the returning, uh, from his brother and the group that returned. He wanted to hear about the returned exiles and what, what, how their welfare, how, how they're doing in the home country. But Hanani has bad news and he says that the exiles are living in great trouble and tremendous shame. The walls of Jerusalem still lie in ruins, the city's abandoned, and the gates are burned with fire. And Nehemiah had hoped to hear that Jerusalem you know, was Camelot. He didn't expect to hear that it was actually a ghost town. And it was actually harsh, desolate, cold, and abandoned. And just to put an emotive quality to this, maybe to try to connect thousands of years of distance. Imagine one of our teams from India, as soon as they arrive, they send us their first update, and they say all the churches we've built have been destroyed and burned, and the wells have been busted and pulled out of the ground, and the children's home lies in rubble. And of course, in such a moment, you'd ask, my God, what are you doing? What are you doing? It wasn't supposed to be this way. You're not supposed to bring devastation like this and allow it to continue, where are your promises? And certainly Nehemiah would ask the same questions. He hears the news and he's crushed. It's almost a century since the exiles have returned and the city is still desolate. God, where is your promise that you would dwell with your people? Where is your promise that you would be near to us and draw us close? Where are you? 
And verse 4 tells us that Nehemiah sat down and wept and fasted and mourned for days. He constantly had that pit in his stomach that bad news brings. The best food in the world didn't taste as good. The luxuries he enjoyed didn't offer the same comfort. He was awoken to the reality of the world, and what he saw made the world a much colder and sadder place. It's not easy to be devastated. It's not easy to receive bad news. It's not easy to wake up to the reality of the world and find that it's not what we thought. It's not easy to wake up one day and the realization hits you that your marriage isn't quite what you thought it would be. The job you'd hoped you had didn't turn out the way it did. The church that you hoped would bring some new life didn't. Family is not going the way you thought it would go. Man, it's in those places we begin to rethink our lives. We ask big questions then. Questions about purpose and meaning. Because it's not easy to wake up to the reality of the world and find that it's a far less wonderful place than we thought. And in that realization, we're confronted with the choice of how to respond. And the truth is, it's a lot easier to turn the TV up louder and to jump into another book or to run away or go a different direction or find something new or a new hobby. It's much easier to do that than it is to wrestle with God. Wrestling with God is hard. And the story of Ezra and Nehemiah continues to tell us that perhaps devastation is the place where you will meet the divine. Because there is no gospel if it does not deal with the worst parts of our lives. It is no gospel if there is no valley and it can't deal with it. But our existential challenge and our experience is that it's far easier to believe that God is distant from our hurts and disappointment. It's far easier, it's far more convenient to believe that and just give up than it is to actually have the faith that God has a purpose for them. That's hard. So how does Nehemiah respond? What does he do with all of his devastation and his disappointment and his sorrow? Well, he wrestles with God. He wrestles with God. Verse 4 tells us that he fasted and prayed for many days. And we get a picture in chapter 2 and verse 1 when he actually says he did it for four months. Four months of constantly seeking God. Four months of constantly pounding on heaven's door, asking God and pleading with him. He chose the route of faith. And he stopped. He didn't respond in a brash or foolish manner, but he stopped. And even though he didn't understand all the angles, even though it didn't make sense, he stopped and searched for God and brought all of his questions before him. And at the end of the season of prayer and fasting for Nehemiah, he comes out making an audacious request of God to give him favor in the sight of the king. Somewhere in that four months, something happened that gave Nehemiah a willingness to make an audacious request. But before we can understand his request, we need to understand his motivations. What's motivating him through all of this? What makes him at the end of this time of his sadness to end up making this audacious request of God? Well, I think we have to begin with the question, why is Nehemiah so upset about the walls? Why is he upset about the walls? It seems simple. But the walls represent a few things for Nehemiah. And they're important things. Whenever Hananiah returns in verse 3 and gives him the news, he says that Israel is living in shame. And he's referring to the fact that amidst all of the brokenness of the walls and in the city, Israel in its homeland and in Jerusalem is a punchline. It's a joke. They're mocked by their enemies because it's a constant reminder of the decimation that Nebuchadnezzar had brought upon them because of their sin and rebellion. It was a constant reminder of their failures and their past. 
Every time they walked by it, there was a shameful reminder of the parts of their story that they wish they could forget, the parts of their story they wish they could ignore. But it wasn't only that for Nehemiah. The walls also represent this image of purpose, or the purpose of protection and separation. You see, at this time, nobody was living in Jerusalem. It's abandoned because the city was defenseless. Jerusalem was not a safe place to live, which is the complete opposite of what God intended for Jerusalem to be. It's the complete opposite of his intentions for his people because if you remember, God promised Israel whenever they came out from the exodus from Egypt, he said, I want to bring you to a land flowing with milk and honey and I want to give you rest. I want to give you rest from your warfare. I want to give you rest from your enemies. He doesn't want them to live in fear or anxiety. He wants, to live, he wants them to live in peace. He wants to give them the rest they long for. And it was in Jerusalem that that was the place that God would dwell with his people. The walls were a physical reminder of separation and how Israel was to keep away from false gods and worship the one true God. And inside the city walls, that was to be holy ground where Israel practiced the law of God that helped them approach God and learn what he was like and taught them how to love him and love one another. It was a place where they would learn how to live in his presence and care for the concerns and welfare of one another. The walls weren't simply to separate Israel from the world so that they could shut themselves in. The walls served the purpose of separating Israel so that they could invite the world in. So they could say, come and see. So that whenever the world would come and look in on Israel and Jerusalem, they would find a place where mercy and justice and love and goodness reigned supreme. And they would ask the question, who is this God you serve? Who is this God that is unlike any God on the earth? See, the walls for Nehemiah were an integral part of God's vision for his people. And Nehemiah knew that God's vision of the good life was tremendous and incredible. And the sad reality is that these broken walls were a reminder that Israel settled for far less. And it's out of this remembrance that Nehemiah confesses. In verse 6, he laments and confesses that the fact that not only Israel, but he also had fallen far short of what God intended for him. He doesn't run away from his story. He doesn't pretend as though there's no failure. He's honest about it. And this is why we confess each and every week in our service. That's why we need a, life, a lifestyle of confession. We confess not because God really loves it when we feel bad about ourselves and he can say, aha, I gotcha. We confess because we know that we've settled for something far less than what God wants for us. Because he is a good God. And in verse 8, Nehemiah remembers God's promises from centuries before. He remembers God's promises from Deuteronomy 30. God promised Israel when he promised his, whenever he brought them out and wanted to bring them to a land of milk and honey and bring them rest. He also said that if you reject me, I will scatter you among the nations. But if you return to me, if you return to me and trust me once again, then it doesn't matter if you're scattered to the farthest reaches of heaven. I will gather you and I will dwell with you once again. Nehemiah realizes in that promise that God is merciful. And that's his only hope, is that God would be merciful once again. And this changes everything for him, and it gives Nehemiah a new sense of purpose. It gives him something to stand on. 
It's out of this promise that God would be merciful that Nehemiah finds an audacious faith that makes audacious requests. And he recognizes that God's mercy was evidence of his unwavering commitment to his people, that even in the midst of their failures, he will be strong for them. So Nehemiah makes a bold request from God because he's going to go in to ask the king for his audacious requests. And usually that is not the type of response we have to discouragement and devastation and disappointment. You know, our instincts are not to ask God for anything big or bold because we're afraid of being disappointed all over again. We're afraid that God isn't actually committed to us and he doesn't care and whatever devastation comes is just another sign that he's cold and distant and emotionless towards our situation. And when you begin to believe that story, you ultimately end up losing any sense of meaning and purpose in life. And the mantra of your heart becomes, this is just how it is. This is just how it is. And God would say to you through this story this morning, no, it's not. It's not. Return to me. Nehemiah tells us this new story that reminds us that it's precisely in sadness and devastation where we're actually reminded about who God is and that he is unwaveringly committed to the good of his people. And certainly he had to wrestle through that. Certainly he had to wrestle with whether or not he believed that. Conclusions like that are hard to come by. He had to reconsider the trajectory of his life and the purposes that he'd had for himself. What would life look like if he did nothing and just settled that this is how life is and continued on with the status quo? What would his life look like? Would he be satisfied if he just continued on? Then on the other hand, what would it look like to trust God in the midst of a situation where he feels absent? What would it look like to have faith in the midst of this devastation? The story gives us a picture that faith wants to know what's on the other side of the valley. Faith wants to know what's on the other side of the valley of devastation. And one thing we've said from the beginning of this series is that the story in Ezra and Nehemiah tells us that God's promises are never without a call to respond. They're never without a call to respond. And Nehemiah helps us understand the answer to a question is that why is it worth responding and laboring for God's purposes in the first place? Nehemiah would answer, it's because he's merciful and that he's far more committed to fulfilling his promises in the world than we ever are or ever will be. God is merciful to Nehemiah, and Nehemiah finds a new purpose. In the midst of his devastation, he finds that God is actually wanting to do something new. And he brings this audacious request to God, to the king. And he basically says to the king, I want you to take, let me rebuild the walls. I want you to let me rebuild the walls of my home city, and I want you to let me rebuild the city itself, and I want you to give me all the resources to do it. That's the type of request that will get your head chopped off. And to put some historical context, Persia at this time was trying to deal with a ton of rebellions throughout its empire, which makes it a really bad time to ask to rebuild the walls of a city that's known for being rebellious. Impossible circumstances. He asked the king for these audacious requests to overturn a decree. And the king simply responds, When will you be back? When will you be back? 
And after all his anguish and wrestling with God, Nehemiah writes in verse 8 of chapter 2, The king gave me all of my requests because the good hand of my God was upon me. It's a fascinating story. I think the good hand of our God is upon us in this church. I think the good hand of God is upon us in profound ways. And I think the same story is playing out in our church. It has been for the last few years. To make audacious requests before God. Let's not settle with boring. Let's be bold in our prayers. We asked a few years ago that we would start to see that God would begin to reveal his glory among us. That God would begin to reveal his glory in powerful ways. Came up with a new mission statement that we felt was full and faithful of what we were called to be as a church, and we asked God for bold things. And we continue to ask God for bold things. And as soon as we started asking bigger requests from God, that's when He showed Himself to be the most faithful. That's when lives started to change. That's when we we saw that He cares far more about us and His purposes than we could ever imagine. So let's do a quick rundown of the last few years. We wanted to get involved in missions and see God's glory extended to the earth through us and to be used by Him. We wanted to make an impact. We didn't want to be spread 3,000 miles wide and give 100 bucks. We wanted to make a big impact in India. But at the time, we didn't know where, and India was given to us out of nowhere, truly out of nowhere. Just fell into our lap, see our eyes just two blocks away. And we wanted to have generational relationships that we didn't just want to have a vision for our generation, but we wanted to extend beyond us in our lifetime and for our kids to actually adopt the promises of God and for them to go to India as well. And this year, those prayers are being answered now. Three teenagers are going to India. We also wanted to make a lasting impact financially and to actually have something that if we pulled out of India and the places we serve, they'd know it. Because we were so involved and so invested there that if we stopped being invested, then life would change for those people because that's how influential we wanted to be. That's how audaciously we wanted to be involved in their lives to bring the gospel and to bring new life for them. And so we said, hey, let's, let's raise $30,000. We had no, no business whatsoever of the church that size raising $30,000, and sixty two came in. The next year we said $80,000, 90 came in. Seven churches, six water wells. More kids coming into the Rajah Children Home. Salvation's happening when they see those walls being built. They ask, who is your God? Who is your God? But then there's lives that are being changed as well. Ryan Swindle said he would never, ever go to India. And he went. And now he can't wait to go back. He thinks about how we can be training the pastors. It's given him a new purpose. Two years ago, I remember talking with Tim Long. He said, I'd like to go. But this year it's really hard because I don't know really where I'm going to be able to raise the money. And if I don't raise the money, I'm not in a position to be able to pay for it myself. And he said, the only thing I have is just, I guess I'm just going to have to move forward in faith. So he moved forward in faith, and two weeks later, his first check that came in was for double the amount that he needed to go, $2,000, from somebody that he barely knew. He just sent a letter on a whim. Amy Fisher went, and she saw the need there, and after going two times, she decided to have a new career, to leave her old career and pick up a new life where she now works at CRI, continuing to participate in this new purpose that God gave her. And one of my favorites is Ken Huntley. Ken Huntley came back from Kolkata, and he said, I 
hate India. I don't ever want to go back. It's dirty, filthy, disgusting, and nobody. It's just the epitome of idolatry. I'm never going back. I'm never going back. And one month later, he said, I have to go back. I have to go back. I don't know why, but I have to go back. And if you ask Ken now what he thinks about India, he'll start to tell you bigger visions and audacious requests and ideas that he has. He wants to set up a school so that we can start to control the education of these kids that need help. We can actually begin to set up funds to pay for their college. We can begin to actually pull children out of poverty and prostitution and give them a new life. We can begin to make connections for them with Western companies so that they have money and new jobs and new opportunities. It's a story of how his devastation turned into his delight. That's an amazing story. But it's also here at home. Matt and Stacy Fuquay, their neighbors, separated. Husband moved out. They prayed for a year, a year, that they would get back together. And one day, they woke up and they saw his truck back in the driveway again. Their marriage was restored. There's more stories. Our children are coming and asking about the table and if they can take it. We had a vision to be a place where healing actually happens and broken people can come and we can heal the broken and we're getting people with devastated stories that are coming in beat up and broken and just now through here what God is doing, they're beginning to find hope again. That spouse of theirs isn't as much of an enemy anymore and they're falling in love again. People beginning to find freedom from addiction and begin to see new life. I say all of this because I think Jesus is just getting started. I think he's just getting started. All of these stories are an invitation to keep asking. Keep asking. God says, tell me what I can't do. Make big, bold requests because I am a merciful God. And we have the... uh, boldness and confidence to do that because he is far more committed to his purposes than we are. He's far more committed to your marriage than you are. He's far more committed to your communities and to your children and to your homes than you are. He's far more committed to India than we are. He's far more committed to our world than we are. So we can come and ask for big, ridiculous requests because he loves it. Which is exactly why we can come to him because, and ask for crazy things because he makes crazy promises. Today here, that Jesus loves audacious faith because he wants and desires and longs to show his audacious love. Maybe your faith left long ago and you have been stuck in a rut for years. Some of you are in a hard season of devastation and it's hard to hope It's hard to have faith. It's hard to trust in a God who's merciful. And maybe you kind of say this morning, you hear all that and you say, I want it, yeah, but still, I just don't feel like God wants to use me or wants to give me new purpose. And I don't really believe right now that God wants good things for me. How do you know? How do you know? Unless you ask. Ask for big things. Because what's true of Nehemiah is true of you. The good hand of your God 
is upon you. Let's pray. Jesus, we, we come before you really having no idea how much you love us. It's incomprehensible to think that we will spend eternity understanding the depths and beauty of your love for us. I pray that you'd make us a people that would really have the understanding that if we're not living for your purposes in our lives and in our world, then we're living a life that is not flourishing. We're not living the good life. It's not the life that you would have for us. I pray that you would minister to those who are in difficult circumstances and come this morning devastated. I pray that you would remind them that you are a merciful and gracious God, that you take awful, terrible circumstances and you make new life happen. We don't always understand your ways, but we trust that you can take devastation and turn it into delight. I pray, Father, that we would be builders of your kingdom and not bystanders. I ask that you would do this quickly and do it abundantly and that we would continue to ask you for big, audacious requests because there is no request that we have that is too big for your power to accomplish. We thank you for all that you've done for us. Remind us of your goodness to us. Amen.